I wanted to uh, just take a moment to thank every person who pitched in and was a part of VBS. It takes a lot of work to pull off VBS, and it's usually at the end of a long day. Uh, just that stage um, backdrop alone took Nina and her crew three 12-hour days just to build and put that together. And that's just like a drop in the bucket of all the work that you guys put in uh, to, to VBS, which is about leading our children to know and love Jesus. And, and for all the work that it was, I want to say this, it was worth it. Um, every bit of it was worth it. Thank you, team leaders, craft leaders, worship leaders, uh, everybody who pitched in to make sure that it was a great VBS, because it certainly was. So thank you for that. And, uh, and so... Um, I, I wanted to share one story, though, if I could. Um, so I was just kind of bouncing around watching you guys do uh, an amazing job, and I came into the worship center um, for, uh, just to kind of overhear what was going on. Allie Lamb was in here leading the worship time, uh, teaching the kiddos songs and all that sort of stuff, and memorizing, and, uh, and then she would have the kiddos pray at the end, and, um, and so you know where I'm going with this. Uh, and so uh, one of the little boys who volunteered to pray, evidently there was like a competition, between the guys and the girls this week to see who could bring the most uh, food for our food pantry. And, uh, and so, you know, just after this fa- fabulous time of just teaching these kiddos the word, uh, who wants to volunteer to pray? A little boy raises his hand, says, I want to pray, and I love his prayer. Dear God, please help the boys to win and the girls to lose. <laughs> Holy cow. I mean, could you be, be, be more honest in your prayers than, than God? This is what I want to happen, right? And, uh, and in that moment, though, I thought about how, as adults, we just pray oftentimes grown-up versions of that same prayer, don't we? I mean, if you've ever prayed, dear God, let me get this job or this raise that somebody else was applying for, basically you're saying, dear God, let me win, let everybody else lose, right? Or if you've ever prayed for your sports team uh, or, you know, or that you would get this house or whatever it is. So um, I was thinking about that as we moved into Acts chapter 19 this week, which is where we'll be. Uh, if you want to go ahead and turn there, feel free to, to flip there in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible want to follow along, we put black hardback Bibles under the seats around you. And if you don't own a copy of God's Word, that's our free gift to you. Put your name in it, take that thing home. We'll be in Acts 9, 19 in just a moment. But as we're preparing to have a discussion uh, from Acts 19 about the work that God does, I thought about the way we typically pray and what that reveals about what we think God is most interested in doing, right? And so if you look at uh, or listen to the prayers um, or maybe think about your own prayer life, um, I think there's kind of a confusing message about what it is that God uh, is most after in this world uh, because our prayers tend to center around who? Me, right? God, I know you got 6.8 billion people here on the earth and I don't know a third or so are praying to you today, but this is what I want to happen. I want things to go this way. I want traffic to be light. I want my boss to be in a good mood, right? I want... Uh, I want this project to go well. I want to, right? And so we pray in such a way that things work out best for us most often. And so today we're going to look at the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and in our lives that maybe that might impact the way we pray, uh, the way we live, um, our awareness of what God is actually doing. So Acts 19 is where we're going to be. We've been working through the book of Acts together. Uh, I'm going to give you just a little bit of geographical background and some storylines so we can just pick up with chapter 19, verse 1. So last week we were in Corinth. 
uh, the Apostle Paul was uh, working there, ministering there. And, uh, and so he's going to pack up and head out now on his way back to Antioch of Syria where he started and conclude his second missionary journey. Okay? And so while in Corinth, though, he uh, meets Priscilla and Aquila who had come from Rome. They were Jews who got kicked out of Rome. Uh, Paul encounters them there, uh, stays in their home with them. Uh, he helps them make tents and uh, gets really uh, close to them. And so he says, hey, why don't you guys come with me? So he loads them up on a boat, sets sail for Antioch. Well, along the way, they stop in Ephesus. And when they do and get off the boat, Paul rolls into town, does what he does, goes to the synagogue, preaches a bit, and then he gets back on a boat to head on back to Antioch. Well, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there. So Paul has left Corinth, touched base in Ephesus, gone back to home base. Simultaneously, something else is happening. There's a guy named Apollos on the scene who has heard about um, John the Baptist. He's even heard about the Christ. He's familiar with some of the teachings of Jesus. And he's made his way to Ephesus. And so he's in Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila. And so they hear him teaching about Jesus from what he knows, which isn't complete, but he's teaching what he knows boldly. Priscilla and Aquila, who've been with Paul, they pull him aside like, hey, Apollos, man, you almost have it. Like, you're a bold teacher. You're, you're fantastic. People want to listen to you. Let us fill in the gaps on the gospel for you so that you're actually preaching the gospel of Christ. So they do that for Apollos. Then he leaves Ephesus and goes to Corinth, which is where Paul came from. So there's this kind of geographical shuffle, if you will, which is why when you read 1 Corinthians and there's a conversation Paul has with the Corinthians about, hey, why are you bickering over who baptized you, whether it was me or Apollos, Right? I planted, he watered, but God's the one who actually did the work. He's, he's the one you need to be focused on because there was this kind of shuffling, if you will, between Paul and Apollos here. So now what's going to happen is this. Paul is going to come back to Ephesus, where he had just briefly touched base. And he's going to kind of clean up some of the teachings of Apollos that weren't completely wrong. They just weren't complete about the baptism and about Holy, the Holy Spirit. And this is where we're going to pick it up in chapter 19 uh, verse 1. Um, one more side note. Apollos was familiar with baptism, but only from the perspective of John the Baptist. Okay? That's going to come up here. So he was familiar with John the Baptist and his baptism. If you remember from early on the Gospels, John came to prepare the way for Christ. And what John was doing was calling people to repentance and baptizing them, which was an Old Testament practice. It was symbolic of the Old Covenant, right? Baptism for repentance of, or for forgiveness of sins. If you want to be forgiven, you need to decide to be baptized, dipped in the water, and cleansed of your sins. Now, the problem with the Old Covenant is that it did nothing to change our hearts. So by my own decision, my own will, I could go to the synagogue and say, you know what, I've just been a dirty, rotten sinner this week. I need to be baptized for repentance. And I would be baptized there, uh, John the Baptist's baptism. But when I left there, there was nothing fixed inside of me. So I came in selfish, a horrible husband, right, a horrible father. And I stepped right back out into those roles and continued in that same sinful arrogance, if you will. So John the Baptist's baptism was both a symbolism, but it was also a proclamation of what was to come, a better baptism. Okay? And we even see John say this in Luke chapter 3, which you don't need to turn there. Let me just read this. We'll, we'll put this on the screen. In verse 15 of Luke 3, this is early on in the Gospels. John the Baptist is on the scene. He says, As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. So he had, he had caused such a ruckus there in and around Jerusalem that the people thought, maybe this is the Messiah. And so in verse 16, John answered them all saying, 
I baptize you with water. That's my baptism. But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so there is a new baptism coming, and he'll come with the, it'll come with the Christ. So in the New Testament, New Covenant, those who are being made right with God through faith are being baptized. We talked about this last week. Symbolizing what? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. John couldn't symbolize that, right? Because the death, burial, hadn't happened. But also symbolizing that by faith, our sins are forgiven, and we've been given a new life in Christ. That's the new baptism that Jesus would, in fact, bring. Now, that'll set us up here for verses 1 through 7 in Acts 19. Here we go. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, so he left town, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Now, that's letting us know that their teaching on Jesus was, was, was incomplete, right? Right? Because even Jesus taught on the Holy Spirit. If we go back to the Gospel of John, he talks about um, how it's important for him to leave and go back to the Father, and his disciples are a little bit dismayed by this. He said, hey, guys, listen, it's good for you that I go. It's better for you that I go. I, I must go to the Father. When I go, the Helper is going to come, letting them know that the Holy Spirit of God would be coming, right? And so even those, those disciples who walked with Jesus knew about this promise of the Holy Spirit, but these guys didn't. Why? Because more than likely, they were influenced by Apollos. He wasn't trying to mislead them. He just didn't have the full teaching of the gospel, right? The full teaching of faith in Christ alone is what gives us forgiveness of sins, establishes a relationship with God. We're baptized symbolically to express that publicly. And so Paul encounters some guys, and maybe he overhears them talking about God, and they're throwing around some God talk, and he said, let me just ask a probing question. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. And so then look at what he says here. Verse 3, and he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism, right? Talking about John the Baptist. And Paul said, well, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. We talked a lot about baptism last week, so we're not going to stop and do that a whole lot this week, okay? But here's an instance where being rebaptized was the right move, right? We don't want to get into this mode where every time I mess up and I make a mistake, I got to go back to church and get rebaptized. That's a works-based mentality. But here was a time, a moment where, where some folks who were really trying to learn about God, but were, were off, right? They were, they, were, they were under a wrong understanding of who God was. They were baptized in an old covenant, from old covenant perspective, right? Paul says, hey, we need to, we need to reset here. Let's redo this. And let's be, not necessarily rebaptized, baptized for the first time in Christ, now, from here is what I really want to begin to focus on. Because remember his probing question? Right? He asked them the question, what do you know about the Holy Spirit? That was his probing question. So the focus of this text, and really most of the book of Acts, is what the Holy Spirit is doing. And so, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Spirit came on them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So there's about 12 guys there with Paul 
uh, in this moment. Now, stories like what we're reading today and, and what we're going to read in just a moment um, can set uh, can set a course of, of a false understanding of who God is, right? So if we just had the, this story, that's all we had, we might assume then to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we need Paul to lay his hands on us or an apostle to lay his hands on us because that's what happens in this story. But when we embed this story in the bigger narrative of Acts, we see something a lot bigger going on here. Matter of fact, of course, Jesus taught about the coming of the Holy Spirit, but in Acts chapter 1, we started this sermon series by looking at what Jesus said right before his ascension. In, in Acts 1.8, he says to his followers, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. How do we know when the Holy Spirit's here? Jesus said, oh, you'll know. You'll receive power. Well, what will that power look like? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's primarily what the power is going to look like. Now, there'll be, there'll be other validations of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. But primarily the thing that the Holy Spirit is empowering you to do is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's the primary thing the Holy Spirit's going to be doing in and through your life, Right? And so then, right after that, chapter 2 is Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is poured out on all who are there. And the, uh, the apostles begin to speak in tongues. It's this amazing moment in church history. And then Peter steps up to preach. And he addresses the fact that a lot of people think they're drunk because the Holy Spirit's working powerfully through them. And one of the things he says in, uh, this is in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, he quotes Joel from the Old Testament. Now, we don't typically think about the Old Testament as a place to go for teaching on the Holy Spirit, do we? The Holy Spirit was all over the Old Testament. The prophet Joel said this in Joel chapter 2, and this is Peter quotes this in Acts 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now, what Peter was getting at is, first of all, I want everybody present to understand what you're seeing right now is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. God promised in the Old Testament he was going to do that, okay? And, and not just on like the spiritual leaders, the pastors, the elders, the missionaries, everybody. Sons and daughters, young men, old men, everybody who believes is going to receive this empowerment and filling of the Holy Spirit. And what Peter is saying in Acts 2, Holy Spirit's here. Right? But we have to keep that in context of what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would primarily be doing, which is what? Empowering his followers to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, along the way, the Holy Spirit is going to do some miraculous things. And that's what we see happening here as these 12 men are filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues and prophesying. Like there was a tangible expression of the filling of the Holy Spirit in this moment. But we can't conclude that unless these things are happening, the Holy Spirit isn't moving which is a modern-day misunderstanding of what we just read, right? Those who would say, unless the walls are shaking, right? Unless people are rolling around on the floor, right? Speaking in tongues, the Holy Spirit didn't hear, right? Just God's not working, right? Earlier, I was watching as we were singing the song, and the screen was shaking. That was shaking because it's windy outside, right? That's not the Holy Spirit up there shaking the projector, right? That just because that happens in Acts 2 doesn't mean that anytime God works... The room shakes, right? right? But there'll be those who would conclude that and say, well, unless right, God shows up powerfully and shakes this place up and it's like smoke and the lights start flickering, then, then God's not moving, God's not working, and we might as well just stay at home. 
However, on the other end of that pendulum swing, right, there are those who say, well, God is a God of order, peace, and patience, and, and kindness, and he speaks in the quiet. And so unless everything's in order, everybody's sitting in their chairs, right, with their church clothes on, right, following along, nodding, only saying amen when it's asked for. Amen? See? Right. That's what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to move. Everything's in order. Oh, but what we get from the narrative of Acts is this, that God works in both settings. God does do some extraordinary things at times, things that just rattle the building, but most of the time, what we're reading about God is doing is he's changing hearts, changing lives, saving souls, redeeming the lost, right? There's no light show to accompany that. It's my desire for Solid Rock Church that we would be a church that understands that some of the most powerful movements of God in our lives in this moment are when God steps into the mundane, the ordinary, the hard conversations that we need to have, the hardships of life and works on us there. If you've ever been um, in counseling with me, you know that one of the things that I love to point you to and to thank God for is the work he does below the surface right? Because I believe that God works below the surface. It's primarily what he's doing in my heart today, my time with you. It's primarily God's working on me, causing me to be more like Christ. And that'll play out in very regular, ordinary ways, like the way I love my wife, right? The way I lead my boys, the way I interact with my friends. That's a supernatural Holy Spirit work in me. Now, at the same time, though, I want to be somebody who believes God can do miraculous things, things that would blow our mind, things that we would consider to be extraordinary. But we don't want to be a people that compartmentalize God and shove him into one of two categories. And just because in this moment things are happening in an extraordinary way, as we're going to see in just a minute, right, the will of God, the spirit of God can't be manipulated by the hands of man. And so we read that here in this moment these men were speaking in tongues and prophesying. Which, by the way, prophesying is, is, is twofold. It's telling what will happen, but it's also making a true statement about what is happening. It's foretelling and forthtelling. So, so every time we get together to open God's word, right, we expect prophecy to happen. If you've ever been in a moment where maybe you were sitting um, at a Starbucks talking with somebody, and then you're presented with a conversation you weren't prepared for, and all of a sudden something takes over, and you've got the words that you didn't formally, you weren't prepared to say, and God's spirit begins to move, through. that's prophesying. You're foretelling something that's true right now. God's spirit working through you. Building didn't have to shake and the lights didn't have to flicker, right? right? But God's power was moving through you. Now, here in this moment, what we're gonna see is, in just a moment, is, um, is we're gonna see a couple, uh, a group of seven boys, seven brothers, try to kind of hijack the work of the Holy Spirit and kind of manipulate it for selfish gain. But before we get there, I want to offer this up to you. So we're working through the book of Acts together, and especially now that we've gotten to where Paul is kind of the primary character uh, in the story, when he touch bases, touches base in these towns like Corinth, we can go read Corinthians and learn a lot uh, from his perspective, right? Because we're reading this from Luke's perspective. And so same thing about Galatians. When we were looking at Paul, what Paul was doing in Galatia, we looked at Galatians to get more of his perspective. The same thing can be true about Ephesus when we go to Ephesians. It's interesting, in, uh, in the book of Ephesians, six chapters, Paul teaches on the Holy Spirit 13 times. So it was really, from Paul's perspective, it was important that he lay sound doctrinal perspective on who the Holy Spirit was. Why? Because he realized they had a false understanding of the Holy Spirit of God. 
I'll just give you some examples of uh, Paul's teaching from Ephesians. You don't have to flip there. We'll put these on the screen. Uh, Ephesians 1, a really helpful verse. Uh, Ephesians 1.13, Paul says this, that in him, which is Christ, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When did you receive the Holy Spirit? When you heard the gospel and you believed it, right? What what do I have to do to get the Holy Spirit in my life? What do I need to do? I need to get baptized. I need to join the church. I need to go get me some church clothes. I need to change my radio stations and get that little bumper sticker decal. Is that when I get the Holy Spirit? Or do I need the apostle to come, lay his hands on me? Paul said, no, no, no. You have access to the Holy Spirit when you hear and believe the gospel. Matter of fact, we talked about like last week how Unless the Holy Spirit opens up our hearts, right, we don't even respond to the gospel in faith. So just hearing the gospel, opening up to it, and believing it is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's miraculous, isn't it? It's a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. I'll skip over a few in Ephesians 2. Paul talks about the Holy Spirit's work in our lives in the church. 2.18, he says this, that through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. So here I am right now, and and if I stop and I pray to God, the Holy Spirit is is mediating for me, right? Translating my intentions, my heart, my words to the Father. And if you stop and pray right now, at the same time, he'll do the same thing for you. We have access to God through one Spirit, whether we're in the same room or not. You can be across town. And the same Spirit of God. So we don't get this idea that there are a bunch of spirits out there right? It's one Holy Spirit of God. Not only that, in Ephesians 2, I love this, uh, this description of the church in Ephesians uh, 2, 22. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by what? The Spirit. It's this kind of this, this, this mental imagery of a, of a stone building being built and a, and a skilled mason kind of fumbling through the, the, the rejected stones and the rubble and picking one out and taking a rock hammer and beginning to chisel on it. Okay, that's you, right? That's you, chiseling on you, and then he picks another one out and begins to chisel on that, and that's me. But he's not just chiseling on us. He's putting us together to form something, right? And so what Paul says, the Holy Spirit is that skilled mason who's working on you, chipping away at your life, shaping who you are to be more like Christ, at the same time working on me, and then fitting us together in a unified way to become the church. It's the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. Right? The fact that you're here, and, 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 and you're with somebody else, and y'all were filled with joy when you saw each other today. That's the Holy Spirit, right? Binding us together, pulling us together. Ephesians 3.16 says that we're strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians uh, 4, the first five verses talk about our unity together is because there is one Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30, we're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit because we've been sealed by him for that day of redemption. Ephesians 5.18 is interesting. So Ephesians 5, Paul's writing a letter to Christians or non-Christians? Christians, the church, who have been sealed by the Holy Spirit at the moment they heard and believed the gospel. So they have the Holy Spirit, but look at what he says in Ephesians 5. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. 
So there's that kind of that, that age-old debate between, right, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Like, there's those who would say, like, unless the walls are shaking, lights are flickering, we're not filled with the Holy Spirit. So we've got to beg God for that, we've got to plead for that, and we're going to be waiting on God to do that, right? But there are those who would say, no, 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 I was filled with the Holy Spirit at the point of salvation. I don't want anything crazy to happen. I just want life to go, right, predictable, mundane, ordinary, according to plan. And that is the filling of the Holy Spirit in my life, right? And so what we actually get from Scripture is it's both, if you're saved, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you. We'll talk in a minute about the evidences of that. But then there are those moments that maybe you didn't even plan on where God orchestrates a conversation or a moment where he begins to work through. He fills you up for that moment, that thing that he's doing through you. So it's not either or, it's both and. So... Be saved and sealed and filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Which one? Both. Uh, Ephesians 6 is a really helpful um, passage on the work of the Holy Spirit. It's a really short verse, verse 17. Um, it comes out of the passage that we call the armor of God. And, uh, and, and so the Apostle Paul writes like a one-sentence description of how the Holy Spirit works in tandem with the Word of God, which is what we see playing out through the book of Acts. Okay? It's not the power of these men and how good of they are at, at preaching. It's not just the Holy Spirit working. It's the Holy Spirit of God working through people. And in Ephesians 6, verse 17, we read this. Paul tells us to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's such a simple phrase. But did you hear how, that, how the Word of God works tandem with the Spirit of God? The word of God, okay, the truth of scripture, the gospel in my life is like a sword in the hand of the Holy Spirit of God. I need both, right? I can't just shut this thing, walk away, say I'm just gonna follow the Holy Spirit in my life. Paul says that's not how it works. The Holy Spirit works in your life wielding the word of God. Now that, that sword sometimes is like a surgical instrument, right? Working on my heart, cutting away with delicacy and accuracy, right? This isn't the idea that, right, the word is supposed to be this, you know, this baseball bat we run around clobbering people with or like a bullhorn we're yelling at people, right? The idea is what, though? God works in tandem through his word and our hearts and the Holy Spirit indwelling our life. And the word of God becomes like a sword wielded by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, we skipped over some of the passages in Ephesians, but we get the sense that it's important to Paul to lay sound doctrine on the Holy Spirit for the church in Ephesus. Now let's look now at an example. Um, we're going to look at verses 13 through 19, an example of um, what happens when we attempt to call things God that aren't God or hijack the work of the Holy Spirit or just go after the magic show Right, and not realizing that God works powerfully in mundane, regular moments. Um, so in verses 8 through 12, um, the Apostle Paul, he goes to the synagogue teaching. He stays there about three months and gets to a point where he kind of realizes, oh, wait a second, um, you know, I think my work here is done. So he leaves the synagogue, kind of like he did in Corinth. But in Corinth, he left the synagogue and went right next door to the first house he saw. He's going to leave the synagogue in Ephesus, and he's going to go to the hall of Tyrannus, which was basically a place of higher education. And what a perfect place for Paul, right? They just opened it up and let him come and teach there. He stayed there for two years teaching and preaching the gospel. 
And God was working so powerfully through Paul that miracles were being done. And this is where we'll pick it up in verse 13. Actually, let's pick this up in 11, back up to 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. And so Luke wants us to know, like, God was doing some powerful thing through, things through Paul, such that, I mean, even... Right, people came in contact with something he touched being healed, right? And it, and it would give us the illusion that the power rests in the Apostle Paul. And there are those who read this passage and hijack it in the modern-day church, right? And they'll tell you, if you'll just send me 1999, I'll pray over this handkerchief, and I'll send it to you in the mail. True story, right? Making a profit off of this supposed work of God. Now, I've got a grandmother who lives in poverty right now, and I can't tell you about the tens of thousands of dollars she's given to those kind of ministries that promises prosperity, gospel, foolishness that's not in the Bible, right? Where the power rests in the man, not in the God who's in the man, working through the man. And in no way is Luke saying, you guys need to get online right now and order your Paul handkerchief, Right? He's just saying, like, you just wouldn't believe. It's almost an idiom, right? It's almost like, I mean, just, the, just Paul walking by, people were getting healed, right? Trying to paint for us a, a picture of how powerful God was moving in Ephesus. Well, just like the modern church today, there's going to be uh, a group of, of guys here who say, you know what? Let's see if we can make a little bit of money off of this. And so enters the sons of Sceva. Let's pick this up. All right. So, verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, say that fast ten times. Did anybody run into any itinerant Jewish exorcists this week? (laughs) No idea. Here's what that means. Itinerant means they traveled around for a living. They were Jewish background, and their specialty was exercising demons, right? And so we know from a biblical perspective um, that more than likely they were just kind of putting on the magic show, right? Because the power of God only can exercise demons. We saw Jesus do that, and we're about to, uh, and we see that Paul just did that in this text. So these guys are traveling around, kind of making a profit off of this idea. Well, now they see it actually happening. Now think about that, right? They've been kind of doing the, the, the Wizard of Oz thing, and now they're like, oh, whoa, 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 did you see that? Like, Paul, this guy over here, he called on some God named Jesus, and demons came out. Like, that's the thing we've been trying to convince people we do. And so let's, let's look and see what they do here. So, sorry, this is one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts. And so, these exorcists, they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So we get this idea that they they saw the power of God working through Paul. They don't really know who Jesus is, so they're calling on the Jesus who Paul proclaims. And here's what happens. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them. Now, it's never a good sign when you're performing an exorcism and you 
command a demon to do something, and instead of doing the thing you command to do, he turns and he speaks to you. But that's what's happening here. And so, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered, them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Now, I haven't been in a whole lot of fistfights in my life. I think I've been in two scraps, and I was at like 12 or under, right? But when you leave a fistfight without your clothes on, you got whooped. This wasn't, right, where we need to tally up the score, right? Seven on one, one guy turns on seven brothers, who, by the way, are probably pretty good at fighting with one another, right? Turns on them, whips them such a way that they leave the house without the clothes on. Just, I mean, how do you explain that one to mom, right? Like, you can explain broken glasses, got my shirt ripped, I had a bike accident. All seven boys come home without their clothes on. What's going on here, right? Nose is bloody, what did y'all do? We were just trying to exercise a demon, and then that demon just whooped our tail. What were they doing? They were trying to hijack the work of the Holy Spirit, right? They were trying to put on the magic show. They were trying to make money off of what God was doing, and, and, and God would have nothing to do with that because God does not work according to our ambitions or our will. He cannot be manipulated and controlled by what we want. He is not a God without a will. God has a will, that's why it's so, I think, so important for us when we pray and ask of things of God. Pray and ask. You want the job? Ask. But end your prayer. God, never mind what I want. Your will be done. He has a will for you. He's not waiting on you to come up with the best plan for your life and for him to go, oh, good job. Stamp of approval. You're going to get a raise. Right? He has a plan for your life. And God is doing a work in your life without the magic show. He is. He's working below the surface. Let's look in just a minute at how we know. Before we do, I want to end this passage in, in Acts 19. So evidently, when they left the house naked and ran through town, people caught wind of what was going on. People were talking in the streets. And evidently, it wasn't just these seven guys who were putting on the magic show trying to make money. Look at the impact it had on the city. By the way, Ephesus at this point in time had the third largest library on earth. Okay? Look at what happens. <clears throat> and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Why did the fear fall on them all? Because a lot of them were engaged in uh, and, and, and magic and sorcery and those sort of things. And look at what they do. Verse 18, also many of those who, who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And then verse 20, Luke reminds us the point of it all. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That's the storyline of the book of Acts. That's why Luke continues to tell us stories and then bring us back to that point. Tells us a story, brings us back to that point. The point is not what Paul or did, did or didn't do. It's not about these boys getting their tails whipped. It's about the word of God increasing 
prevailing and multiplying. That's what God is doing in the book of Acts. The reason we call this sermon series the Unstoppable Church is because Jesus said himself, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. I'm going to launch a church through some guys, and they're not going to be super competent either. Right? They're not going to be religious scholars, highly moral men. I'm going to pick from among the least so that you know it's the power of God working. Right? He, he still does that today, by the way. Case in point, right here. Okay? Case in point. Because why? God wants us to understand that the story of the church is the story of the Holy Spirit working in tandem with his word to build his unstoppable church. Solid rock, we're just a drop in the bucket of that storyline. But what God's doing here today is the same work he's doing in the book of Acts. Which means the same work he's doing in the book of Acts, he's also doing in your individual life here today. Now, God wants to shake the place up and rattle the walls and flicker the lights, and right? That's up to him, okay? A lot of us get a little freaked out probably, right? Somebody, yeah. But we don't need that to happen, right, for God to move. When we sang earlier, Holy Spirit, fill this place. What are we saying? God, come meet us in this ordinary, mundane moment. What seems predictable, right? What seems kind of just, meh. God, come move in this moment. And by moving, what I mean is move in my heart. Right? Move in such a way that I'm changed. Do the real miraculous work. Work on me. Galatians 5 is where I want to end with you this morning. And, and hopefully this will help us as we leave out of here today. Um, Galatians 5 is where we get the teaching on the fruit of the Spirit. And the point is Paul wants us to know what it looks like when the Holy Spirit works in our life. Okay? So the fruit of the Spirit wasn't just this clever, devised list of words that allow us to do creative things in kids' ministry, right? The fruit of the Spirit, what Paul is saying is the fruit that comes out of your life when you have the Holy Spirit looks like this. This is Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul is saying if you'll do these things, you'll never be breaking the law. Right? You'll never be breaking the law by engaging in self-control or patience or love or peace, patience. What he's saying is this is the fruit that comes out of your life when the Holy Spirit is living in you. And, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified or have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. I want to make this last point. This idea of keeping in step it's, it's the idea of taking chaos and putting it into order. So it's like when a kindergarten teacher takes like craft time and within like seven seconds, all the kindergartners are in one line. They're all quiet, their hands are by their side and they have a bubble in their mouth. That, that's what it means here, keep in step, get in sync with, right? And so what Paul is saying here in Galatians 5 is that you and I should get in sync with the Holy Spirit, align our lives with the Holy Spirit of God. So this fruit that comes out of my life, it's not just gonna happen by me going about my day as though, right, nothing. I have to participate in this, right? So let me read the list again. Love. I have to choose to love, right? Some of you it's easier, but all of you have to choose to do it, right? My wife is an easy person to love. I'm not. But we both have to choose to love. It's not just gonna happen. That thing that just happens, that pitter-patter, what's the matter, heart fluttering, all that, right? That's not love. That's, that may be some form of affection, 
right? You might love the way that person makes you feel, but love is a willful choice to put somebody before yourself. I have to choose to love, and when I choose to love, I'm participating with the Holy Spirit. I'm keeping in step with the Holy Spirit. So later on this afternoon, when I'm tempted to speak out of anger towards my wife, when I choose not to, but I choose to love, I'm participating in what the the Holy Spirit's doing. I don't get any credit for that. That's a supernatural moment in Jason Williams' heart. Trust me, right? Go down the list. Joy, peace, patience. Patience doesn't come natural for anybody. Some of you are better at it, but you always have to choose to be patient. That's the idea. I'm choosing not to react. I'm not to act in anger, but I'm choosing instead to be self-controlled, refrain from saying what I want to say to you right now. I'm going to choose to be patient. Now, why am I making that point? Because we, as Christ's followers, have the Holy Spirit in us, yet we, at the same time, choose to participate in what he's doing. This is the supernatural work that God is doing in you. He's producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God is saving souls. He's redeeming marriages. He's calling people out of addiction. He's healing brokenness. This is the supernatural work that God wants to do in your life today. And so what's the, what's the takeaway on, on a sermon like today? My encouragement to you and I is that we would, just as we sang, we would walk out of here with more of an awareness of what God is already doing, and we would make a willful choice to participate in the work of the Holy Spirit. Husbands, later on today, when you're thinking about getting off the couch and going and folding some laundry before your wife asks you to, hey, that's not you. That's the Holy Spirit calling you to serve her, right? Wives, when something goes down, your your husband does something that you don't like, and you feel that irritation welling up within you, right? Because you've told him a thousand times not to leave his shoes laying right there, and you just tripped over him again, right? But in that moment when you choose to engage in self-control and say, you know what, I'll just pick him up because evidently he's so dumb, he's not going to get it. Like, that can be a supernatural moment of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Right? Parents. Right? Rather than when your kids aren't obeying you, losing your cool, right? Letting the tempers flare, saying a bunch of things you regret. Instead, in that moment, you choose to engage in loving kindness, patience, and self-control. That's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Yeah. So let's be a people that expect God to work in what seems to be ordinary, mundane moments in life. Let's participate in what the Holy Spirit is doing in every conversation you're having. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's also be a people praying for the miraculous, the supernatural, for God to do according to his will what he desires to do. Right? Let's don't pick and choose. Let's don't push God into categories. Let's be his people. Well, I want to share one hope for you, and then we're going to pray. My hope for our church is that we would become a biblically literate people. This generation, statistically speaking, is the most biblically illiterate generation of the church in church history. Why is it important for us to become biblically literate? Because the word of God is the sword which the Holy Spirit of God wields in our lives to do this supernatural work. And if we're not reading the word and studying the word and letting it read us and study us, right? We're not participating with what the Holy Spirit wants to do. So I'm going to encourage you to think about that as you leave out of here today, to walk in step with the Holy Spirit of God and to become a student of his word that he might do a supernatural work in your life every day. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. 
Um, prayer partners will be in the back, um, in the, right out in front of our prayer and counseling rooms. If there's something going on you want them to pray with you about, they'd be honored to do that. If you're here today and you want to make that first decision to trust in Christ and become a Christian, um, I want you to know that our prayer partners are ready to have that conversation with you. And so when we stand to sing, you could just slip out and make your way back there and just ask one of them to pray with you and slip into one of our prayer and counseling rooms and, and spend some time there. Um, when we sing, if you want to stand and sing, uh, there's just something stirring in your heart and you just can't wait to proclaim just how excited you are about what God is doing in your life, then do that. If you want to stay seated, you can do that as well. Um, but let's pray together. Um, Father, we thank you for this reminder today, God, that you truly are a God of supernatural power. And, and at the same time, God, we, we want to confess that the most amazing work that you do is the work you do in, in us. Moving mountains is easier than changing a hard-headed, stubborn, sinful heart. So God, we want to we glorify you, Father, that you do this amazing work in us. And today across this room, God, there are hearts that need got the presence of your spirit, the work of your spirit to be filled with your spirit. So God, as we, as we move into a time of, of singing, um, God, would you fill this room with your Holy Spirit? God, would you fill our lives with your Holy Spirit and do the work that only you can do? Father, we pray all these things in the powerful name of the Lord Jesus Christ.